Hello, everyone. My name is Per Nielsen. I'm the executive pastor of Campus Ministry and part of the preaching team here at Hosanna. It's good to be sharing God's word with you. What a remarkable video. What a remarkable opportunity we have to continue being the hands and the feet of Jesus for those who are in need. I really want to encourage your participation in this essential needs drive. You can just drop things off at any of our local campuses, Rosemount, Northfield, Lakeville, Shakopee, next Sunday. So next Sunday, the 23rd, um, during the time blocks that are given. We know that we can take many of these items and bring them to people who are in desperate need in our larger communities. Uh, this is such a remarkably giving church. Uh, this church practices stewardship so, so faithfully, and I want to thank you for that, and I want to encourage you to continue that level of stewardship. One of the things that's transpired since COVID began is that we have grown in our online giving to the point where about 80% of our gifts come in now online. That is remarkable. I mean, it really is remarkable. And thank you for that level of investment through online giving. If you have not yet given to the life of the church and you would like to, we would love for you to do that. We're concluding our fiscal year in just a couple of weeks, and so we want to finish strong. You can just simply text Hosanna Church to 77977. That's 77977. But let's always remember, and this is such an important part of giving, that we want to give in the way the Lord asks us to give. And we know that the Lord loves a cheerful giver. So let's give cheerfully to the work of the Lord. This is week three of our teaching series on the book of James, and I hope you've been reading along in the book of James and applying it to your life. I also hope that you have participated with us in our Facebook devotions. Those two things combined are really going to allow this teaching to flourish in your life. When I take a look at the book of James, what I look at is kind of the essentials of the faith. I look at James as being the nuts and bolts, the practical application, the common sense work that God really wants us to do. Uh, but there's an important caveat to this, and the caveat is this, is that James asserts that as he gives us this information, as he gives us this, this spiritual feeding, that we need to do something with it. We need to take this common sense approach and we need to practice it. We need to apply it in our lives. And when we do, we will find greater fruitfulness. On the other hand, if we don't, we will not find greater fruitfulness. We will run into deeper challenges spiritually. So the encouragement is to take all of this information, move it from our head to our heart to our hands, and apply it to our Christian life. Uh, one of the beauties of this book is that it stands on one of the very earliest disciples, a man by the name of James, the brother of Jesus, who was a leader in the early church. And James wrote this book to a variety of different people. In week one of this teaching series, pastors Ryan and Jen talked about those individuals as the gathered group and the scattered group. There were people across the entire region who were, who were seeking God, who were yearning to follow his ways in a more significant fashion. And then last week, Pastor Jason talked about this notion of faith and fear, and that there's gaps in our lives around both of those. And he said that, that if we are going to really follow the Lord in this practical application that James is setting before us, that we need to take and fill something into that gap. In the faith gap, we fill trust. If there's a, if there's a gap in faith, we fill trust. And in the fear gap, we fill courage. And when we do those things, all of a sudden the nuts and the bolts of faith start to come together a little bit more significantly for us. And that ultimately is James' goal, James goal that we would have a living faith, a purposeful faith, an intentional faith, 
all the way across our lives. 1927 was the very first year that Time magazine published its Person of the Year. And they use a particular criteria for that Person of the Year. Let me just read it to you. The Person of the Year is this. The person or persons who most affected the news and our lives for good or ill and embodied what was important about the year for better or for worse. And so we have uh, business leaders like Mark Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos. We have politicians from around the world, many presidents here in the United States. We have Greta Thunberg from Sweden, a 16, now 17-year-old activist. Uh, we have an individual who actually was dead when they were added to the list of most significant persons for the year. Albert Einstein died in 1955, and in 1999, he was actually considered the person of the century around the globe. And then, of course, in 2006, we have the favorite person of the year for everybody, and that person was you. Yep. You. You were the person of the year in 2006. If you were alive in 2006, you were the person of the year. Um, I thought about that person of the year idea in 2020, and, and there's a lot of names, there's a lot of potentials that come to mind. But I think the one that takes it away, the one that will get the award no matter what, is this guy right here. <laughs> yep. Mayhem. <laughs> absolutely mayhem. This year has been a year of absolute mayhem. It's been chaos for the past five to six months. And I would suggest that the mayhem is going to continue. Um, we've got a political season coming up. We've got an election taking place. We've got schools that haven't even started yet. We've got sports that isn't happening it is going to feel really, really unsettled. And so the circumstances surrounding Mayhem may be different, just like it is in each of his commercials, but it's going to feel unsettling. It's going to feel like we're stuck in Mayhem just the same. Now, you might be asking the question, what's the connection? What is the connection between Mayhem and what we're studying in the book of James? Well, what we're going to be exploring today from James, the second chapter, is a part of our lives that if we don't deal with it, it will become a petri dish that will generate mayhem. It will give birth to mayhem. Mayhem in our personal lives, mayhem in our family lives, mayhem in the schools we attend, mayhem in the communities we participate in, mayhem around the globe. In fact, we are living in some of that mayhem here and now today in this state and around the United States. What James addresses in the second chapter, the first nine verses, is the notion of favoritism, of prejudice, of discrimination, of bias. That element of our lives where we push people aside for really no known reason where groups of people separate from one another when, when they really should be drawing together. And James deals with it in a very, very pointed fashion, in a very straightforward fashion. You see, favoritism is not something from James' perspective that is part of the kingdom of God at all. And that's what we'll see 
in the book of James, the second chapter. So I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of James in the second chapter as we start at verse 1. James begins this way. Verse 1. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? Now, let me just stop right there and clarify something. Um, we all have favorites. Uh, we have favorite people. We have favorite ice cream. We have favorite movies. We have favorite music. We have favorite schools. We have favorite places we like to visit. We have favorite activities. And those favorites actually form some of the relational connection in our lives. I mean, think about the number of people that you connect with because of some of the favorite things that you have. They become friends. They become acquaintances. They become partners in life activity. So favorites is not a negative thing in and of itself. In fact, favorites can be a very positive element of who we are as people who need community, who need relationship. I've got favorites. You've got favorites. My favorite movie is Top Gun. I can't wait for the sequel to come out next year. Uh, my favorite activity is I love to bow hunt. I love sitting in a stand in the winter or in the fall and, and into the winter and, and hunting deer. I just love to do that. My wife and I have favorite activity too. We love to do remodeling together. That's part of what gives us energy. It's part, of, it's part of what drives us. And because of those favorites, if I'm sitting in a group of people and right over here I've got a group that's talking about the significance of bees in the ecosystem, and over here, I've got a group of people that's talking about the new bows that hit the market for 2020. I'm going to move from bees to bows every single time. And all of us have areas of our lives where that will happen. That's not what James is talking about. Let me be really clear about this. That is not what James is talking about. James is talking about playing favorites. James is talking about favoritism. James is talking about something that is a favorite that ends up separating us from other people. That's what James is talking about. Let's read that passage again. Just hear these words. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? The definition of favoritism is simply this. The practice of giving unfair preferential treatment to one person or group at the expense of another. And for the Christian, James says, it is a real point of caution to live with a heart, with an attitude, with actions of favoritism. Let me read that first verse again and then I'm going to just read through the rest of the passage. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? For example, James is saying here, here's a nuts and bolts example. Here's a common sense example. Take this and apply it to your life. It's something everybody understands. Suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. 
If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor, well, and you can almost hear the tone of exasperation in that term. Well, well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Yes, indeed. It is good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. What a remarkable passage of scripture. It's almost a mic drop moment for James in and around this topic of favoritism. And there are a number of different things we could draw out of it, but I just want to pull three out of it for us today. I want to talk about the position of favoritism. I want to talk about the origin of favoritism. And then ultimately, I want to be able to talk about the significance of favoritism. What does it really mean for our lives? Let's take a look at each one of these. Number one, the position of favoritism, verse one. Verse one tells us that the position of favoritism is that favoritism, prejudice, discrimination, is separated from God. That's what verse one tells us. It's uncoupled from faith. How can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? In other words, there's inconsistency between claiming to have faith and living a life of prejudice, living a life of discrimination. There's inconsistency there. It doesn't reflect the heart of God. It doesn't reflect what it means to exemplify Jesus to the world. I've got to tell you, this was one of the great issues at the time of slavery in this country. And it's an error that many, many, many made. There were many pastors in many churches who actually supported slavery. They supported the prejudice, the discrimination of slavery. And they used the Bible to do it. But, but here's the significance. In using the Bible to do it, they had to skip over passages like this. Many, many others like it. They just had to skip over them. They, they pushed them by. So I think a good question for us is this. Are there passages of scripture that we just skip over because they're uncomfortable? Are there passages of scripture that we just simply push aside because we don't like them, because they don't favor our perspective? Number two, the origin, the origin of favoritism. Verse four tells us that the origin of favoritism is found in evil. That's a pretty shocking statement. It's a powerful statement. But here's what it says. Doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? One of the strategies of the evil one is to try to undo everything that Jesus came to do. Jesus came to draw people together, to draw people into relationship with God. Jesus came to reconcile to heal relationships. Jesus came to bind up the brokenhearted. 
Satan uses favoritism. He uses discrimination. He uses prejudice. He uses bias to pull people apart, to separate, to create discord, to create disunity in people's lives. Let's look at that third point and the whole notion of, of the significance or the essence of favoritism. Let's go to verse 9. Verse 9 says this, that the essence of favoritism, the significance of favoritism is sin. It's just simply sin. Here's what verse 9 says. But if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. The essence of favoritism is sin. Why? Uh, Because in playing favorites, you cast aside the second great commandment. In playing favorites, you dismiss the very heart of God from your life. Three powerful elements, the position of favoritism, the origin of favoritism, the essence or the significance of favoritism. When we take them and apply them to our life, they, they become part of the chaotic nature that grows in the Petri dish of favoritism. In 2015, uh, National Geographic did a really, really interesting experiment. Um, It was a series of short videos called The Brain Games. And in these videos, they tried to help people understand how the brain itself functioned. Um, This particular brain game is called Helping Hands. And you can actually go out to Google and just put in National Geographic Helping Hands, and this video will pop up so you can watch it, you can see it for yourself. Again, what National Geographic was trying to do was they were trying to understand human nature and particularly how the brain functioned in certain sets of circumstances. In this particular circumstance, they took cameras and they placed them around an open area where there were a lot of people walking through. It was a high pedestrian traffic area. There were people sitting on benches. And then they watched to see what happened toward a couple of particular outcomes. What they did was they hired an actress to come in and make like she was having a medical emergency. And so she would walk into the square, she would cough, and then she would fall to the ground like she was having a medical emergency. The first time that they did it, they had this person dress in business clothes, nice hair, makeup, walking properly, and all of a sudden they start coughing and fall to the ground with a medical emergency, and the next thing you know, within three to 10 seconds, they have people there asking if they can give a hand. This happened time after time after time after time after time. Three to 10 seconds, no longer than 10 seconds. Then they had this same actress go and get dressed in rags, in dirty clothes, take her hair and mess it up, looked unkept, take off all the makeup walk in kind of a hunched over fashion, maybe even a drunken fashion, start coughing, walk in, fall down like they were having a medical emergency, and then they waited to see what would take place, and five seconds passed, and 10, and a minute, and five minutes, and 10 minutes, 15 minutes, still nobody had come up to give a hand. What was remarkable to me was to watch a young couple on a bench that was sitting next to where this was all taking place. And 
This couple looked like they were in love. They were talking back and forth. They were engaging one another. They, were, they had kind of the love bug, the love bird flying around them. But all that time, they were unwilling to step down and love their neighbor. Now, National Geographic did this to try to conclude the impact or the significance of favoritism in our brains and how it functioned from the perspective of humanity. And their assertion was this, that favoritism is actually hardwired into us, and favoritism is there to, to help the crowd, to help the herd, so that the herd can go stronger. So we pass by people who might be weak, and we help those who might be stronger and those who might be able to help us down the road. But Christians look at it very differently than that. Um, if National Geographic looks at it from the standpoint of helping the herd, Christians look at it from the perspective of this is the nature of sin. National Geographic says it's there to build up the crowd, to take the best of the best. Christians say it's not there to build up the crowd, to take the best of the best, but it's there really to support me personally, individually. It's a very selfless self-centered act. One of the things we have to understand is that there's a spectrum to this thing that we call favoritism. Over here we have what I'd like to call subtle favoritism. Uh, subtle favoritism happens all the time when we're kids. Uh, I remember when I was young going to the ball field and wanting to be chosen and being looked over even though I was a better ball player than some of the other kids, but, but there were friendships, there were relationships there, and, and I didn't get to play the game, and I remember how that felt inside. A few years later, I was the older kid, and I did exactly the same thing, bypassing the better players just to have my friends on the team. It, it's something that happens to just about every child, to just about everyone when they're young. And, and as we grow older, we, we hope to grow out of it to a greater degree. But some people, very honestly, continue to hold on to it into their adult lives, well into their adult lives. It's a subtle form of favoritism. Then we have what I would like to call over on this poll uh, a sinister form of favoritism. Nazi Germany killed 11 million people. It's a sinister form of favoritism. Cambodia, other countries that have committed genocide. Rwanda, a sinister form of favoritism, a demonic form of favoritism. But there's another form of favoritism that exists here in the middle. And it, and it weaves together the subtleties with the sinister in a, in a very, very seductive manner. And ultimately what it chooses to do is that it chooses to separate, or a term that we have come to know, to segregate, to move people apart. For some purpose, for some reason, we live in, in part of that reality right now. That's been the nature of the racial conversation for a long time in this country. And when we look back, we know that we have built roads and created neighborhoods and, and developed some economic structures, transportation methods that have sought to separate educational models, you name it. We have done it here in this country. It's, it's the subtleties connected somehow to the sinister nature in a seductive manner that, that looks really good to some but ultimately works to pull people apart. What we have to say is that whether, whether we have 
wealth or race or relationship as a favoritism area in our lives. Those will impact who we connect with, what we do, how we live, how we breathe, how we function, and they all live on this span of subtlety to sinister. They all live on that span. And because they live on that span from subtlety to sinister, and because the essence of favoritism is sin, we can expect that there will be consequences when it comes to favoritism. We just have to acknowledge that. We have to accept it as a part of our lives. For example, one of the consequences is a disconnect from the heart of God. And we've already learned why. But, but when we're showing favoritism, there's a disconnect from the very heart of God. Another area of consequence is a disconnect from other people. And sometimes people we'd rather not be disconnected from. But our heart gets disconnected from the heart of other people. And then there's a, a third consequence. And it's a consequence that kind of rolls out from the first two and, and it impacts people around us. It impacts people in the world that we may not even know or understand or see. But, but it comes because people know that we have a call to follow Jesus because we confess the Christian faith. We're invited to follow Jesus. We may even profess that we are Christians following Jesus. But then when those individuals look at our life and they compare it to what we say, they use this term called hypocrisy. And hypocrisy, friends, is the number one reason why people who don't know Jesus stay away from coming to know Jesus. People who, who might come to a church stay away from coming to a church. We have these consequences. They're right there in front of us. They're significant. They're poignant. We have to understand them because they are very, very real in our lives. They are very real in our lives. Church, through the power of God and the Holy Spirit, we don't have to succumb to the mayhem of favoritism. That's the calling that James gives us. By the power of the Holy Spirit moving in our hearts, we don't have to fall prey to the spirit of favoritism, to the work of the evil one, to the natural tendencies that we might have because of the nature of sin. And in fact, what the Bible does, the Bible is a beautiful tool, gives us some opportunities, gives us some directives, some tools to be able to combat favoritism in our lives. I'd like to leave you with three and then ask a question. Here are the three. Number one, tool number one in combating favoritism is the heart of Jesus. And the heart of Jesus has to do everything with humility. Philippians 2 says that Jesus humbled himself and gave his life completely to his Father in heaven. The important question for us is this. Have you humbled yourself and given your life completely to your Father in heaven? Tool number two. The eyes of Jesus. The eyes of Jesus are the eyes of love. There's a remarkable story in Mark's gospel, the 10th chapter of a, a rich man who comes to Jesus and, and he interacts with Jesus and, and asks him, asks Jesus what he can do to inherit the kingdom of God. 
And then the scriptures say this, that Jesus looked at him and loved him. And then he turns to him, and in essence he says, here's the deal, you, you can't buy me. You, you can't buy a constructive spiritual life. You can't do it. So I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to sell everything you have and give your money to the poor and then come and follow me. The key to that entire passage is Jesus looking at this man and loving him. When you look at people who may be different than you, who you may have a standoffish approach with, do you look at them with the eyes of Jesus? Do you love them? Can you love them? The third tool in combating favoritism is intentionality, and this has to do with the hands of Jesus. In Matthew's Gospel, the eighth chapter, um, Jesus is walking along. He's just preached the Sermon on the Mount, and, and there's a leper who approaches him. And in those days, um, Jews were supposed to run from lepers. They were supposed to get away from lepers. In fact, lepers were supposed to cry out so that Jews wouldn't come in any close range with them at all. But, but Jesus sees it differently. And so he hears the cry of this man with leprosy. And he approaches him. Instead of running away, he approaches him. And he reaches out his hand and he touches him. Now, there were all kinds of barriers there. There were cultural barriers, there were religious barriers, there were health barriers. Um, those were barriers that were defined by the world. But Jesus is not the king of this world. Jesus is the king of the entire universe. The kingdom of God is much broader than just this world. He's the king of the entire universe. And when Jesus approaches this man, he approaches him from the perspective of God's kingdom, not the kingdom of this world. And he approaches him and he pushes through those barriers. He is intentional about pushing through those barriers, the cultural barriers, the religious barriers, the health barriers, and he reaches into this man's life and he touches him. Where do you need to be intentional about pushing through some barriers? So that you can touch the lives of those around you with the person of Jesus Christ and his saving good news. Three easy tools. Humility, eyes of love, hands of intentionality. The heart, the eyes, and the hands of Jesus. Uh, friends, let me leave you with this question. And what I'd like you to do is I'd, I'd like you to take just a, a little bit of time to pray about this. I'd like you to press into the heart of God and, and just seek his grace and seek his counsel because, because we know some things about this, that, that we don't have to do this alone. We don't have to walk this journey alone. In fact, overcoming favoritism is something that, that can't hardly be done on our own. And what the scriptures tell us from the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2 is that, that when Christ comes into our life, it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives within us. And so with his death and resurrection, we can walk this journey. We can live out some of the challenging elements around favoritism and discrimination and bias and prejudice that we may have in our life. It's his death and resurrection that allows us to move forward. Because if the origin, if the origin of favoritism is the enemy or evil, we have to remember that Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection to new life defeated the power of evil, defeated the enemy. If the essence is sin, 
We have to remember that Jesus gave his life for the forgiveness of sin. We don't need to be bound to favoritism. We can think about it, but we don't need to walk in it. And in fact, we can live in freedom from favoritism because of the favor that our Heavenly Father pours into our life. So let me leave you with this question. Take some time, pray about it, see what the Lord says to you. Is there any area of your life where you have prejudicial tendencies? where favoritism has taken hold, where bias is your front position. Is there any area of your life where that is true? Any area of your life? And if so, what does the heart of Jesus and the eyes of Jesus and the hands of Jesus, humility and love and intentionality bid you to do in relationship to that area? What is Jesus bidding you to do? Remember this guy? We don't have to live bound by favoritism this year in the mayhem that that would cause. Let's not even allow it a foothold in our lives. Amen? Would you pray with me, please? Father in heaven, I thank you for the grace that you shower down upon us. I thank you for your good news. I thank you for the blessing of life itself. And I ask, Heavenly Father, that your word from the book of James would come alive in us. That these tools that you have given to us, your heart, your eyes, your hands, humility and love and intentionality, would really lead us into the future in a new way so that we can be your best representatives of your grace and your truth in the world. And we pray it all in the name of Jesus, who is our Lord and our Savior. And everybody said, amen. Thanks so much for uh, spending some time with us today, for worshiping with us and, and wrestling with God's word. And there are some screen or questions that are coming up on the screen for you right now. We would love you to take some time within your groups or personally to reflect on those questions and apply them to your life. Thanks again for joining us.